So this is a well-known passage. We're going to get to it in a second. Uh, I wanted to share with you something, though, that I was thinking about that will make sense. Uh, and Jonathan, if you could make sure to share this with people online, too, so they can see. Uh, I want to show you some pictures about things like, have you guys ever seen the FedEx logo and noticed how it's like the arrow in between the E and the X, right? I remember someone once pointed that out to me, and now whenever I see it, I think, oh, that's like the first thing I see in the FedEx logo is there's an arrow intentionally between the E and the X, right? Since moving to Switzerland, another one I've learned is this one, the Toblerone one. I had no idea there was a bear in the mountain until I came here and someone pointed it out to me, and now the first thing I see is that little bear, right? It's so great. Um, the last one, I actually didn't know this until I was looking this up online, that the UR in Tour de France is actually a cyclist, like leaning forward, riding a bike. Um, anyone else never seen that one before? I had never seen that one before. And I, I watch the Tour de France every year. I was like, where have I been, right? But now that I see it, I think, oh, I see a cyclist there every time I look at that logo, right? And this is, of course, very clever marketing. That's good, Jonathan, thanks. It's clever marketing, it's good, it's a, here I am advertising Toblerone, and now you guys are all thinking, oh, I could go for a little chocolate right now, right? It works. Um, but it's interesting about these sorts of things is whenever I see those things, now I can't imagine not seeing those things, right? And, and in fact, I feel so clever when I point these things out, which is part of the reason I wanted to do it. It's like now, oh, look what I knew, now you know, right? And, and now, whenever you see these things, you'll sort of think and remember these things. Um, it's almost like you just can't imagine not seeing those things now, right? And if we go a little bit deeper to, to, to these sorts of things, think about outside of advertising, right? But think about things you maybe have seen in your life um, that you can't unsee, right? Think about things that have happened in your life, sites maybe you've seen in your life that you can immediately remember, you can immediately remember where you were sitting, what you were thinking, what it felt like, right? Maybe it was a serious thing, um, just like a, or maybe it was a beautiful thing, like a beautiful place you've always wanted to be. One of the things I always mention for this is the Grand Canyon in Arizona, in the United States. It's stunningly huge, right? Or maybe it was the first time you like went on, maybe you moved to Switzerland, it was the first time you got like, up on top of a mountain, and you just saw all the Alps, and you just sort of sat there for a second and thought, or maybe it was something much more serious and sobering to you. Maybe it was, um, I actually remember, oh gosh, I don't remember what year it was, at least 10 years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Poland, and I went to visit um, where Auschwitz was, the concentration camp from the Second World War. And I always think of, that's something I cannot unsee in my brain. If you've ever seen that place, the vast size and expanse of, of, of something like that is just, I mean, I can picture it perfectly right now in my brain. Right? Maybe it was, like I said, a positive experience. Maybe something that you can imagine was something really, really formative. When you really did something that you felt called to do. And in that moment, you sort of felt like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. Right? Um, maybe it was uh, like, like something you did or something you experienced and you thought, oh, wow, this is what I want to be doing in my life. This is something that fulfills me, right? The famous line from the movie Chariots of Fire with the runner uh, was, when I run, I feel God's pleasure, right? Something where you felt God. Or maybe, like Saul, it was something like a conversion experience. Maybe you have a conversion experience where you met God, and you can say, I remember the day, the time, the place, an exact moment 
and, and, and it's like you can't unremember that moment. You can think of it instantaneously. All of us have moments in our lives. All of us have things in our lives that we can't unsee, that we can't, you know, uh, that can't go away, good or bad. There's something about the way our brain works. <laughs> it's, it, it's a feeling mixed with vision, mixed with smell, mixed with, I mean, it could be anything. But there's, every single one of us has things in our life that we can immediately point to and know exactly what happened when and how we felt. And so with that in mind, let's look again at Saul's conversion. Verse 1 to 4, Scripture tells us he's walking down the road to Damascus. And he's going to Damascus, which is north from Israel, modern-day Syria, right? Still a city there. Um, he's going north, and he's looking for Christians. As we've been reading about Philip, the apostle has taken the gospel north to Samaria, and it's still spreading farther north. And more and more Christians, or more and more people, Jews predominantly, are becoming Christians. And Saul is not a fan of this as we heard that Saul approved of them stoning Stephen back in Acts chapter 7. And so he has decided, as a young Pharisee, to go forth and find Jews who are believing in Jesus and try to get them, right? And so he gets letters from the high priest to arrest people, to take people back to Jerusalem, to hold them to account for what they believe and how, what they're doing. But on the road, as he gets closer to Damascus, Scripture tells us that a bright light shines down from heaven, and he hears a voice. And the voice says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And again, I think the Bible is so great for a lot of reasons. One of the things I love about it is just how like, it captures the human spirit so much. And Saul's response, like, I don't know, and this isn't a great apologetic argument, but if I was trying to write a book, I would immediately write some flowery language of how Saul immediately knew it was Jesus and changed his life. But in the moment, Saul, being a human being, is very honest and just says, hey, who are you? Like, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul's immediate response is, who are you, Lord? Just to make sure. And he says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And I really wish we had more of an inner monologue of what Saul was thinking at this moment. Not only is he terrified because there's this giant bright light that makes everyone fall down on the ground, and there's this voice coming from somewhere that they can't see a person, but then the very person he claims is dead did not raise from the dead. The very same person who he is persecuting says to him, hey, why are you doing this? Clearly this is more than just a person. And then it tells us, well, he says, okay, I'm Jesus, go into Damascus, and I'll tell you what to do. And then verse 7, we get this little detail that everyone who is with him is, is sufficiently confused. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but didn't see anyone. It's like, uh, Saul, did you hear that? What's going on? And then he can't see. They go into Damascus and it tells us he doesn't eat or drink for three days. And then, simultaneously, God goes to this disciple, this follower of Jesus, tells him, you need to go find this guy, Saul. You need to go find this guy, Saul. And then he says, well, okay, God, I get that but you got to understand, I've heard this guy's name before, and it's not a good one, right? It's someone who's actually here to persecute us. So forgive me if I'm a little apprehensive, but this guy was just arresting our friends and trying to put them in prison and dragging them out of their homes when they're worshiping the name of Jesus, and you're telling me to go find him. And God says, yes, trust me. This is my guy. This is someone I have chosen to proclaim my message to the Gentiles. And just as a reminder, 
you know, one of those things where God sometimes does these things where we hear stories about be, people being converted. Or we hear a story about someone and we say, oh, there's no way they're a Christian. Right? I, I'm going to be totally honest with you. Uh, a couple years ago, so, sorry, this is totally out of left field. There's this uh, celebrity pastor that just had this huge falling out named Carl Lentz in the U.S. And um, horrible one of those stories you hear all the time. But um, uh, even a few years before that, there was this big news story that Justin Bieber had come to, come to Christ, you know, with the celebrity pastor, and he was like living for Jesus and all these things. And I just remember thinking, there's no way Justin Bieber became a Christian. And there's no reason for me to say that. There's no, you know, but sometimes in our minds, we hear stories about people and we sort of think, why would they become a Christian? How? Why? Why would God do that? And I just want to remind all of us, because again, that's human nature. I acknowledge it, right? I just want to remind all of us what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when Samuel goes to anoint the then boy King David, and he tells everyone there, hey, hey, don't get distracted by how tall David's older brothers are and how manly they look and how kingly they look. He said, remember, people look at the outside appearance, but God looks at the heart. It's 1 Samuel 16. Should have written it down. It's in there, trust me. Um, and in this moment, God knew Saul's heart. God knew Saul, and God knew that he could tell Ananias that it would be safe to go and do this. And so it happens. And in verse 20, Scripture tells us that Saul was changed. And the word it uses in the English translation, I think, is really good. It says it baffled the Jews. Like, how could this guy who was just traveling here from Jerusalem to work with us to arrest these Christians and get them out of Damascus, how could he now be going and preaching and arguing with the Jews about Jesus being the Messiah? This does not make sense. And then... <laughs> I kind of emphasize this in the reading of it, verse 23 and 24, and then the Jews there turn on him. They sort of say, hey, I, welcome to Damascus, but by the way, you're not who we thought you were. You're not really welcome. Oh, and by the way, we're going to try to kill you. Okay, so we got to get him out of here, so they lower him down through the wall, uh, and he goes back to Jerusalem, right? And then when Saul gets back to Jerusalem, the Christians are afraid of him because of his rumors, and so we need Barnabas to vouch for him. So Barnabas does, hey, no, 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 he was preaching Christ in Damascus. He's good now. And all the Christians, remember, these are the apostles. These are Jesus' followers. These, and they're like, well, I don't know if we really want this guy Saul around. This is human nature. We all do it. We all judge other people for no reason. But then he, he, he comes back, and after that, then he goes and starts reasoning with the Hellenistic or the Greek Jews, and they want to kill him. Like, no one is happy with Saul. And it's amazing how, how this is sort of what happens. Like, Someone who could be living a horribly sinful, selfish, evil life could come to Christ and no one is happy. Christians, our first response is, is he really a Christian? Right? And then the secular world is, oh, he became a Christian. You know, like no one's happy. And here, this is, again, I just love the Bible, how honest it is, because no one was happy with Saul. He's trying to reason with the Greek Jews and they want to kill him. You know, the Hebrew Jews, they want to kill him. The disciples and the apostles, his new team that he has now joined, are all really apprehensive of him. Like the poor guy. But what's amazing is he doesn't seem to care. It says he keeps preaching and teaching, and after they want to kill him in Jerusalem, they send him off to Caesarea, and he goes off and he keeps teaching and growing, and the church continues to grow. And so when I read this story, I want to share with us sort of three things here that, that, that I want to focus on for us tonight. What's happening to Saul in his life and, and, and what we can look at for our own life. 
And those three things are pretty straightforward, but they're the first one is when, when, when we see change in people, when people change their lives, the first thing they have is they have an encounter with the living God. There's an encounter with the living God. The second thing is they then choose to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And the third thing is, quite literally in Saul's case, that their eyes are opened. So let's talk about these three things. The first thing is Saul had an encounter with the living God. Now, I want to remind you, Saul's a Pharisee. Uh, he tells us in Acts 26, when he gives, a, he gives a testimony of everything that happened here in Acts 26, if you want to go read it later. Um, and he talks about how he was trained by Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel is the guy who told the Sanhedrin in Acts 4 or 5 to leave the Christians alone. Remember, he was like, hey, if it's from God, it's going to keep going. And if it's from man, it's going to die out. So leave them alone. Saul was trained by this guy, this high-ranking Pharisee. And we have no doubt to doubt his conviction as a Pharisee. He approved the killing of Stephen. He was doing everything he could to stop the followers of Jesus because he believed in God and he believed his upbringing, he, his training, everything he knew to be true about God, he was all in, 100%, right? And so his whole structure as a Pharisee was these people are breaking the rules, we need to stop them, and he was fully invested. And in a way, you can kind of respect this, right? You can respect the, the, the commitment, you can respect the devotion. And this is sort of the temptation of many religions, right? To ascribe to a set of thinking, a teaching, a tradition, a specific way of doing it. But one of the things scripture teaches is that scripture, Jesus, so much of what God is doing is that Jesus is alive. That's the whole point of Easter that we just celebrated, that Christ has not died for, for no reason, or Christ has not remained in the grave, but Christ rose from the dead, and that he is alive, and that he is living and active in this world through the Holy Spirit, through Scripture, through all the things God is doing. It's human beings that get stuck in traditions. It's human beings that ascribe far too much to the traditions and rules, whereas Jesus is constantly moving and doing things through the power of the Holy Spirit in this world. Saul was wrapped up in everything he knew and all the traditions and all the pharisaical mindset. And he thought it was good. But the problem with that was that there was no room for him to understand a new way of thinking for allowing God to be God. He was trying to fit God into his understanding Pharisee box, right? This is how it works. God goes here. But with Jesus, there was no space for that in their understanding, and so they were completely closed off to the teachings of Jesus. And, and let me remind everyone that when Jesus came to the earth and started teaching, he was trying to get the Pharisees outside of this way of thinking, right? This is exactly what Jesus was doing. He was trying to get people to deconstruct their traditions of religion and their way of thinking and look at new ways of what God might do. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 and 6, Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I tell you this. Remember, we went through the whole Sermon on the Mount. Saul met Jesus, though, and those walls, those traditions, that way of thinking sort of broke. He had an encounter with the living God, which is the first thing I mentioned, and it broke his box that he thought God lived in. Because in his mind, there's no way 
that this Jesus guy was the Messiah, and yet here he was speaking to him on the road to Damascus. When he encountered the living God, when he encountered Jesus, his framework and understanding no longer fit anymore with his life going forward, and then he faced a choice. His choice was, I can either keep my belief as I've always believed, or, and this is the second point I made, he can believe that Jesus was who he said he was. So he has an encounter with the living God, and then he has to make a choice. Do I believe Jesus was who he said he was? And, and what's amazing here, this we sometimes forget, is that Saul still had a choice. Right? Yes, he had lost his sight and everything, but it was three days until Ananias came and he received his sight and started preaching. See, sometimes I think about this as like a Sunday school passage where it all happens at once, right? Like he hears the voice of Jesus and then walks into the city and all the disciples are there with their arms open, like, come on, Saul, and Saul starts preaching and everything's good. But honestly, I had forgotten this detail in the story before I started reading it a few weeks ago, that for three days, it says he sat and didn't eat or drink. What do you think was going on in his mind in those three days? He was going over his history, his traditions, and scripture in his mind and thinking, can I really do this? Can I really believe that Jesus was who he said he was? Can I really believe that everything his disciples are saying is true? That Jesus was the Son of God. Can I really do this? Because even though we might have an encounter with God, we still have to make that choice. You and I still have to make a choice. Do I believe God is, or Jesus is, who he says he is. Even Peter made this choice in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 tells us this before, and again, his name changed too. Simon to Peter, right? When Jesus came, this is Matthew 16, verse 13 and following. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. What about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He had an experience with the living God, and then he had to decide, do I actually believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah? And when he acknowledges this out loud, when he says, I believe you are who you say you are, Jesus says, blessed are you for making this, for saying this. You are Peter, and on my rock I will build my church. And in the same way, Saul had to decide, even though he had a miraculous encounter with Jesus, he still had to decide, do I believe this Jesus? And so for all of us, it's very similar, right? We have an encounter with the living God. We choose if this is really what we're going to believe. And then the third thing, again, for Saul, quite literally, for us, maybe more metaphorically, our eyes are opened. We can't go back. You cannot unsee it, right? Like those logos I shared with you. Like those events in our life that we can close our eyes and imagine and remember, like, perfectly. Like Peter, like Saul, he immediately goes out. The scales fall from his eyes and he goes to preach Jesus' resurrection to the Jews there. 
And you gotta love Saul, man. He was 100% in one way or the other. He's either trying to arrest him or he's preaching the resurrected Jesus. I love it. But his whole life flipped upside down in three days. And he becomes Paul, technically not until a few chapters later in Acts 13 when they start to refer to him as Paul. But he changes in this moment on the road to Damascus in three days following. After his encounter with Jesus, after he chose to believe all the things about Jesus, the teachings about Jesus, his eyes were opened. And so, on one hand, this is a great message for someone who doesn't know Jesus, right? On one hand, this is a great message for someone who hasn't been to church and is like, oh wow, this is what I need to do. But for many of us, who maybe you've been a Christian a really long time, there's there's many of us in this room, I've been a Christian since I was 12-ish, it's sort of hard to pinpoint for me sometimes, but I, let's say 12 or 13. Like, okay, I get that, but what, what does this mean for me, right? I'm a pastor. Does that mean I need to, like, be reborn all the time and go through this whole process all the time? You say, many of us would read this and we say, well, yeah, I've done this. I've, it's happened to me. We're not going to have supernatural encounters with Jesus all the time. But one of the things that stuck out to me in this passage that I wanted to share with us, for those of you who have been Christians a long time, for those of you who read this passage and think, okay, this is good for new believers or people who have never heard this, let me share this with you. When I read this passage, you know what I was really convicted about? I was really convicted about this idea of, do I take the teachings of Jesus really seriously? Because if, if, if Saul had this encounter with Jesus and then decided to believe as I think he did in those three days and then turned his life around, I've, I, I've chosen to believe in Jesus and I've turned my life around in some ways, but do I really take all of Jesus' teachings seriously? Like I think every single one of us in this room, no matter whether we're not a Christian or whether we've been a Christian since the moment we were born and we can't ever remember a conversion story, we've just always been in the church, Are we willing to really take seriously the things Jesus taught? What he meant when he said that we were supposed to lay our lives down for one another's? And can we please, and I'm very convicted of this myself, can we please just stop taking for granted and pretending that Jesus is only as alive when we want him to be? Can we please, as a church, stop taking Easter for granted and teach, or taking advantage of Jesus in the way it says, well, he's alive when I want him to be. He's alive when I want to go to church and have a a lively worship service. Jesus is alive when I need prayer requests. Jesus is alive all these other times. But when I don't want him alive, when I don't want him alive at work, when I don't want him alive when I'm out with my friends, or when I want to put him back in that box, I'm just going to do it. Or what some of us do and even say, well, I'm just going to put Jesus back in his box and put it under my bed for a while because it's not really my thing. What I love about Saul in this passage is that he immediately, once he decided, once his eyes were open, he went for it. (laughs) People want to kill me on this side? That's fine. The Greek Jews in Jerusalem want to kill me? That's fine. The disciples, the people who I thought were going to be my new friends, but aren't really my new friends because they're all scared of me? That's fine. He went for it. And, and, And what I would challenge any Christian to do is not just to think about the teachings of Jesus, but then also, in in a way, apply these truths to every day of our lives. Let's think of how we can do these things each and every day. We're not going to be converted or born again or, or saved every single day like Saul was, but these little things can happen each and every day. Are you and I, who have been Christians for a long time, seeking an encounter with the living God every day? 
Are we starting our day with a prayer like something as bold as, Lord, thank you for this day. Show me that you're alive today. Reveal to me your mighty presence. Reveal to me your Holy Spirit. Do something miraculous in my life. Are we willing to start our days like that? Are we willing to start each day desiring an encounter with the living God? In scripture, prayer, maybe out in nature, maybe in fellowship with friends, it can be anything. But are we willing to pray those prayers? Are we willing to actually believe that the things Jesus said he was serious about? I mean, really, the things he taught were kind of crazy. Are we willing to take those things seriously? And are we really, finally, to open our eyes every day to what God is doing around us? Even if it means, like Saul, having everyone not really like us. <laughs> I mean, Barnabas stood up for him. That was pretty good. But no one else really stands up for him here, right? He's got a few friends who lower him through the wall. He's got a few friends. he got Barnabas. But even the apostles don't want him in Jerusalem. They're like, ship him off to Caesarea. I don't want to deal with this right now. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to have an encounter with the living God, trust in the things Jesus said and taught, and then open our eyes to what God would actually have us do so that we would imitate Christ each and every day? Because honestly, and you all know this, we all know this together, that Far too many of us just sit there willingly with our eyes closed. And we open them when we want Jesus to be alive. We open them when we want to have an encounter with the living God, when it's convenient for our schedule. And I had a really hard week, so you know what, Jesus, if you could be alive today, that'd be really great. But he's always there. He's always alive. Are we willing to be brave enough to pray that prayer and take his teaching seriously? Saul was, and I'm very convicted about it to be honest with you. So let us not sit here with our eyes closed any longer. Let us not sit here thinking that God fits in a box. But let's open our eyes, go out into the world, and regardless of what happens, let's preach the things we know to be true about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, thanks for Saul. What a wonderful, wonderful story. God, I thank you for his conviction. I thank you for his commitment. And Lord, though he persecuted many believers, I thank you that you knew his heart. And God, I thank you that when he met you, that he turned, that he believed, and that he opened his eyes, opened his eyes to the need for many, many Gentiles to know you, including us. And so, God, as we go forward, I pray that we would not only remember the time we first met you, but, God, that we would seek to meet you each and every day in our lives. Lord, we are grateful for this story, we're grateful for this truth, and we pray that we would make these things real in our lives. Lord, you are good, and for this we say thank you. Amen. I want to invite the musicians back up, and um, we'll respond. Uh, they're going to play.